0: Big Topics, Big Ideas and Practical Policy Solutions. This is Leaders on the Frontier with your host, David Lease.
1: Welcome it's February 14, 2023. The topic today is all about COVID-19 and the associated actions and attacks on freedoms and rights in Canada. and. What about protecting freedoms in the courts? So we're going to be talking with uh, two of our guests, uh, quite an animated discussion about the debates that's going on in defense of freedoms and rights in our country. We know that in Canada, the response to COVID-19 was comprehensive. We had, frankly, attacks on Canadians' rights and freedoms through major lockdowns, the closing of schools, Uh, the imposition of many mandates on people. Thousands of persons lost their jobs. We even had uh, places of worship closed um, for uh, Canadians. So these were just many of the actions that the government felt were justified. And some Canadians believe that as well. So today we want to be able to get into uh, some of the legal uh, challenges that are in defense of Canadian uh, freedoms. And why are these actions being undertaken? So we want to explore that today with two of our guests. I want to introduce them. We're delighted to have uh, John Carpey, a lawyer and president and CEO of the justice center. The center is a leading advocate in defense of charter rights and freedoms in Canada. We also have Layton Gray, a senior partner at Gray Spencer, and a leading lawyer undertaking actions against charter violations. Leighton is a senior fellow with Frontier and also is the host of Gray Matters. So welcome, gentlemen. We're glad that you could join us. Glad to be with you. Well, look, as we reflect on COVID-19, it's hard to believe that's coming up on some three years ago that uh, we first heard about COVID-19 and many governments acted, uh, frankly, in a state of emergency out of the desire to protect people's health and well-being. Um, they undertook a myriad of actions. Were they justified to protect human health in this way? What's your answer to that?
2: Well, if you're starting with me, I would say no. Uh, It became very clear very early on that COVID-19 was not the Spanish flu of 1918-1919. The Spanish flu of just over 100 years ago killed uh, at least 1% of the world's population. It actually killed 20 million people, at least possibly 50, some historians say hundred million people at a time when the world's population was barely a quarter of what it is today. So the COVID numbers, uh, even by April, it was evident we're not dealing with the Spanish flu of 1918. And yet we've had politicians like Jason Kenney publicly compared COVID to the Spanish flu of 1918. Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, in London, uh, expressly compared COVID to Spanish flu of 1918. False predictions by Neil Ferguson that that over 500,000 people in the UK would die of COVID. Well, it's you know okay, so, nothing close to that.
1: So you're saying that the the whole analogy that this is the uh, the end time that this is going to be like the Spanish flu was clearly overstated, and therefore the lockdowns were not justified. And that was hence a, a violation of many rights and freedoms. Is that what you're saying, John?
2: That would be the biggest reason. Now, there are other reasons. I mean, even if we even if we were dealing with the Spanish flu of 1918, you still have to ask a bunch of other questions like, do lockdowns work? Are they effective? Is it yeah. actually true that there are no treatments or cures, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera? So there's all these other questions, which I think the the government would be embarrassed to have to answer. Uh, but the, the the biggest one right out of the gates is that that COVID, uh, contrary to what the politicians said, COVID was not uh, the worst pandemic in a century, and so none of these measures were justified.
1: Okay. So, what about you, Leighton? What do you think? Well, um, I think I, first of
0: all, I agree with John, and I, but I think it goes deeper than that, and I know that some people would uh, regard what I have to say about it as. Uh, uh, what tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. Uh, actually, I wear the term conspiracy theory uh, uh, proudly because I understand it started with the people who started to question what happened to JFK. But if you look closely at the wealth of evidence, and there is a wealth of evidence now about the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, if we can call it that, that actually it was, uh, it was well-planned, it was well-conceived, And uh, it it was actually in pre-production for decades. And uh, Mm -hmm. for anybody who wants to learn more about this, um, they can refer to two very copiously documented books. One is called The Real Anthony Fauci, which is by a a collection of world-renowned experts, but it's under the name of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And a second book is called uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, we are the prey. This is by Peter and Ginger Bragg, and both of these books, again, copiously documented. What they, the story that they tell, is that uh, the concept of a vaccine was conceived prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic was, was essentially, the virus was created and released as an excuse for the vaccine. And the real story is the vaccine, and uh, of course, is a much deeper story that's begun to unfold. And you, in the opening, you said, well, as we reflect on COVID-19, would that we could. Unfortunately, I think that history will show that we are still in the pandemic era. We're just at a different phase of it, a different stage of it. Some of us disagree about uh, what stage we're at. Um, I, I don't think we're near the end. I'm not even sure if we're at the end of the beginning at this point. But the answer to your question is, yes, this was an unprecedented violation of human rights, not just civil rights, as we thought in the beginning, but human rights, even down to the violation
1: of the integrity of the human body. Wow. So these are, I would, I would surmise that these would be kind of shocking revelations for, for some listeners where they would say, wow, not only was it not on the scale of the, the historic Spanish flu, but also late in years suggesting that based on evidence that continues to come out, um, out of so many different files, and we'll get to that Uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit later, is that there's a larger story to be told, in fact, in how this was planned, as you say. Mm -hmm. That's quite Uh, a revelation.
0: Yeah, well, I think that um, if you pay attention to, uh, well, I just invite people to go visit the World Economic Forum uh, website and look at their policy page, and then flip over to the Governor of Canada. And if you can see a difference, then you're smarter than I am. Because uh, you said I had compare the world economic world economic policy page, right? What yes. what their policies are, compare those with the government of Canada, and you'll see that they're virtually identical. In fact, I had uh, Dr. Robert Malone on my podcast recently. He mm-hmm. described Canada as a world economic forum client state, and wow. of course, the COVID nineteen pandemic is, I in my view, and this is just isn't my view, but it's but I think it's it's the growing view of of people who. Um, are awake to what's going on. The COVID-19 pandemic is part of a broader plan, uh, to transform the free world, the Western world, which was a, a liberal, uh, you know, a, a liberal democracies, which had respect for individual rights and freedoms and the ability to self-determine into, um, a world in which, uh, our every uh, move is charted and, and controlled right down to how we spend money and, uh, what goes into our bodies and everything
1: else that we used to take. So it's a fascinating thesis that you're putting in front of us, a perspective. So I do want to look then more at current legal actions to date. And I know it's a complex subject and we're not going to be able to go through. um, We're just kind of scratching the surface here in many respects, but I want to talk specifically from your point of view of brief examples of how Canadians Rights and freedoms are violated, um, and w- then we'll get into some of the more legal cases to watch mm. and what's happening. So, um, can you can one of you speak more about the examples of those uh, specific rights and freedoms that have been violated in, in your viewpoint? I,
0: I think John's probably in a better position to answer that, uh, seeing that he his
1: Justice Center specializes okay. in that area. <laughs> John, do you want to go first?
2: I'll, I will mention that uh, I'll go through some of the Charter Rights and Freedoms and briefly explain how they were violated. Mm -hmm. So Charter Section 2A protects freedom of conscience and religion, uh, which is the very first freedom that's enumerated in the Charter. So in Alberta, we had pastors thrown in prison. Uh, In British Columbia, we had houses of worship closed entirely while bars and gyms, restaurants uh, stayed open. Uh, in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, throughout the country, uh, we've had, for example, uh, drive-in church services that have been disrupted, prohibited, banned. So there's been an aggressive attack against the freedom of religion and freedom of conscience uh, extends to uh, a right of every person to decide what gets injected into their body or not. That's obviously been violated by the government mandatory vaccination policies. Um We've got freedom of expression. Okay, can uh, I just
1: pause there for a sec, John? Because as a layperson, I'm not a lawyer, but I do have some legal background. But it's kind of a common sense view here. You could go to Walmart, you could go to the liquor store, but you couldn't go to your house of worship. Is that where the where it kind of breaks down and says, "Wait a sec, why is that not a violation of your right to to frankly worship"?
2: Well, this was the case in in British Columbia for, I believe, about five months, where you could have six strangers meet up at a restaurant and six people sit at a table together, but you couldn't have uh, six people or any number of people. Uh, The Justice Center went to court. We had pastors that were actually willing to comply. In British Columbia, we had pastors that were willing to comply with the hand sanitizer, social distancing, Mm -hmm. mask wearing, capacity limits. We said, we'll comply with all that stuff, but let us stay open and the government, in what I think is simply anti-religious bigotry on on the part of Bonnie Henry and nothing else, uh, the government shut down churches entirely.
1: So they didn't have any rationale from a medical point of view to say no; those can, if you take those kind of precautions, like you would in any kind of store, um, you can still remain open. They didn't. Did they give any evidence to suggest otherwise? The
2: British Columbia government has not adduced any credible evidence before any court that the houses of worship contributed uh, significantly to the spread of COVID. And of course that doesn't even go into, you know, COVID's not the Spanish flu of 1918. So right. why, why worry to begin with? But even putting that on the back burner, there's no credible mm-hmm. evidence to the effect that the, uh, the churches and other houses of worship were serious uh, spreaders of the virus. There's just no evidence.
1: Okay. So what are other uh, rights and freedoms that you think have been, are egregiously violated?
2: So in particular, it's the medical doctors and nurses and healthcare workers who have had their free speech rights significantly violated in the last three years by the colleges of physicians and surgeons or the colleges of nurses or colleges of nurses and midwives. And this is really an attack on science. Science depends on debate and people putting forward their hypothesis and other people criticizing it and having a spirit of humility towards the evidence, analyzing the evidence, uh-huh. uh, and just having this, this debate go back and forth. That's how science and, and medicine move forward and improve. And what what's happened in the last three years is that the colleges of physicians and surgeons and the nurses' colleges have stepped in to aggressively censor what doctors and nurses can say, and threatening them with a loss of license, which is a threat to lose your livelihood. Wow. And so that's been now other other people as well, uh, uh, you know, in various ways, we've got the federal government and Bill C11, and so on and so forth. There's other threats to free expression as well. But it's been particularly hard on the uh, doctors, nurses, and other uh, medical professionals.
1: So, so let me get this straight, John. So, ironically, you had healthcare professions within these bodies trying to speak up, perhaps offering a different opinion than the party line of the government, being forbidden to do so. Otherwise, they could do what? Lose their license? Is that really what was happening?
2: Yeah, the the colleges of physicians and surgeons have sent uh, you know mass emails to their doctors saying you must uh, you must teach everybody to be very afraid of COVID and you you must uh, adopt the position that there are no cures or treatments for COVID you must adopt the position that that lockdowns are really good and they're saving lives they're not inflicting much harm you must uh, tell all your patients that they should get vaccinated you must tell your patients that the vaccine is safe and effective even if that's not your own view All of this government narrative. um, We we recently acted for a nurse in Saskatchewan, Shelley Wilson. Uh, She was critical on social media of the government's message on lockdowns and vaccines. Got a threatening letter from the college, and the justice center stepped in, and we wrote a letter back and said, "You have to respect the free expression rights, the charter rights of your members." And in that case, the college backed down, but in other cases, the colleges are not backing down and they're moving ahead with disciplinary proceedings wow. against doctors and nurses simply for disagreeing with the government narrative.
1: That's incredible. So this is so ironic, as you say, that it's important to have not only freedom of speech to be able to debate ideas and what's best for a patient, but it, it seems like those bodies with the blessing of the government, of course, is is inserting itself between the relationship between the patient and the physician. Is that what's going on? That's exactly what's going on. And this is, this is new. This did not happen
2: prior to 2020. You had the colleges would enforce ethical standards. So for example, uh, a doctor should never have sex with one of his patients. Okay. That's a violation of an ethical standard. The college used to deal with ethical violations Uh, But they did not enter into the debate about, you know, for example, I'll give you a real life example of a public debate. Uh, Should baby boys be circumcised? Yes or no? Well, that's something that that doctors and nurses and everybody else can debate. But prior to 2020, the college would not have stepped into the debate and said, "Okay, guys, listen, we're telling you what the truth is. Here's the truth and you're going to follow it. Uh, The colleges did not do that, but they have been doing exactly that since 2020 by declaring that the the government's narrative is the truth, and any physician who publicly disagrees with it uh, risks uh, loss of license to practice medicine.
1: Well, this is, uh, I'm I'm sure for many Canadians, quite frankly, just disturbing to hear this, especially when there's a lot of things that we've learned from COVID-19 as we've uh, looked, you know, we come up on the third anver- th- 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 three-year anniversary of this. It's hard to believe. We know a lot of, frankly, a lot of things that they asserted with us, and I think Leighton, you were alluding to this, that they asserted were the truth, but in fact now have retreated and said, no, that's that's not true. Like masks are not efficacious; they are mm-hmm. to a small degree, but you know, not really. Mm-hmm. You have all kinds of assertions, like the vaccine does not prevent the uh, transmission of the virus it goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. so does are you seeing any of these parties back away from their violations and say you know what we're sorry we infringed on your rights wrongly in light of what we know Mm -hmm. now well it would
0: be wonderful if that were true but unfortunately uh, we're not seeing very much of that Um, Hmm. I think people would be shocked to know for example in Alberta that uh, our courts were shut down Uh, actually even during a time when the governor of Alberta had re- had removed restrictions on things like masking, uh, our courthouses were the most locked down places uh, in the entire province. In fact, a very senior lawyer named Peter Royal uh, who refused to wear a mask in a courtroom at a time when the mask mandate had been removed in Alberta. Um, he, he refused to wear a mask uh, in the courtroom and he was told by a judge who was wearing a mask uh, that he was in contempt he was cited in contempt oh my and uh and he was uh, he had to apologize and purge his contempt before the court because he was simply obeying the law of the land and so um unfortunately we're we're not seeing yet institutionally that courts and human rights tribunals and labor tribunals for example are adapting themselves to the things that we know about about the science A recent example, uh, John will be aware of this uh, one, I think is a gentleman named Wall, who's an Alberta chiropractor. Uh, He was censured and uh, disciplined by uh, his college because he refused to wear masks. He was convinced that there was no efficacy about the masks, which many people knew early on. He refused to use them in his clinic, and this was with the consent of his patients. None of his patients complained, but uh, there was uh, someone else complained, um, uh, I guess, call him a busybody, and ultimately he challenged that and um, he was um, he was censured by the college the, and, and the college ignored four very eminent world-renowned experts people like virologists epidemiologists people like Byron Bridal testified in that case the the college uh, called as their expert uh, someone who's basically a GP who had no expertise in virology epidemiology or anything of that nature and the tribunal actually preferred the evidence of the GP to these renowned experts. And Mr. Wall was century. And so uh, what we're seeing actually is that courts and tribunals, decision-makers are very, very slow to adapt themselves. What everybody else seems to know.
1: Well, wow. uh, so, so it almost think, seems like they're uh, not doing their job to look into the, the current evidence, mm-hmm. the facts of the matter.
0: Well, I would say, uh, that, uh, a big part of it. And, uh, and some would disagree with this. Um, if you just look at the the approach of our federal government right now, the approach of the federal government is they're still trying to get everybody injected with these vaccinations. And I mean, we could dive into that topic uh, in terms of safety and efficacy. Uh, but as far as our our federal government is concerned, we're still in a pandemic, and I think there's a chill going through all of our all of our institutions in this country about. Covid nineteen, and I think that's why, um, with a few exceptions, um, most of the of the tribunals that we've appeared in front of, and and the and I follow these cases closely as John does, um, and we're just not seeing uh, courts adapt themselves to the reality of what's going on. I'll give you one example, um, uh, and John knows about this too. There's a, a Douglas Allen report uh, from the Fraser Institute, which came out recently, and. This is a report that we actually uh, filed as expert evidence in many of our cases. It basically, describes um, you know COVID-19 lockdown policies as, as the greatest public policy policy error ever in Canadian history, uh, and so this is well known. There's a Johns Hopkins study that says the same thing. Uh, there were pastors, uh, Timothy Stevens, who's a gentleman who I had the pleasure of representing uh, as a uh, on behalf of the Justice Center. Uh, was actually arrested and jailed for having an outdoor um, church service. He had already already been chased out of his church uh, because of the restrictions that John talked about. But uh, what, what happened was the government of Alberta used a, used a drone to catch him, as it were, outside having an outdoor church service. And of course, we know uh, because uh, the government's own experts testified about this in Manitoba. That there's actually no study anywhere to support the idea that there is a there's a risk of getting COVID outside. Uh, but but even so, uh, that meant that meant nothing to the court in Manitoba. It meant nothing to the court, uh, other courts. So really, you know, we're sort of there's a willful blindness that seems to be mm-hmm. going on uh, mm-hmm. throughout the system. And it's very honestly, as a lawyer, or somebody who works in the system, it's very very troubling, and it needs wow. to
1: change. Yeah, it almost seems like a zeal to prosecute people, um, not even, you know, disregarding the evidence of what's really uh, going to be the implications. That's really quite disturbing. I did want to cite a case related to um, our friend, the Honorable Brian Peckford, Mm -hmm. among other parties um, involved in in the whole right to travel. Uh, Can you tell us more about that one, John?
2: So Brian Peckford is the uh, former Newfoundland premier. He is the last living signatory to the charter documents. And so in 2022, which was the 40th anniversary of the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, April 17th uh, being signed, becoming part of our constitution. And so in the 40th anniversary of the charter, we've got an original signatory to the charter, suing the federal government over violating the charter You'd think the uh, government-funded media would, uh, you know, take note of that, but uh, receive very little play in the uh, government-funded media. Um, but but Brian Peckford and, and other Canadians sued over the travel restrictions uh, the, in October of 2022. After the government's lawyers and the lawyers for the applicants had spent huge amounts of time and effort and energy and money and we had expert reports and we had cross examinations of, of experts on both sides. After all of that work went into the case um, and after the federal government officials admitted under oath that there's no medical or scientific basis for barring unvaccinated Canadians from getting onto airplanes and then the, uh, the court dismissed the, um, uh, uh, Brian Peckford's action as moot. We're appealing that.
1: So what does is, what is moot mean in this context? It
2: means it's no longer relevant. Okay. So, for example, if there were, uh, let's say, a husband and wife are separating, divorcing, and they're fighting over the custody of who's going to have a dog and that, that they co-own, and then there's a tragic fire and the house burns down and the dog dies in the fire, the court would say that the their action about who owns the dog is now moot because the dog is dead and the court is not going to waste valuable precious resources on a hypothetical, philosophical, academic question as to who ought to get the dog when the dog is now dead. Nobody's getting the dog. So, So that's a proper example of mootness, but it's been very highly improper here because the federal government can bring back these travel restrictions at any time on a moment's notice and it's just it's completely wrong for courts to have all this evidence and then not not make a ruling right. as to whether the restrictions uh, the travel restrictions against unvaccinated canadians whether they were valid or not yeah. when all the evidence is in it's right. just uh, it's
1: uncomfortable because the, the, the facts are that their travel rights were were violated yeah right they couldn't see family they couldn't see friends and meanwhile life has moved on. We're all traveling now. And so the judge says, I'm just going to wash my hands of this and and call it moot. Is that right? That's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's shocking. So in that particular case, is there hope then Uh, where, where is that going to some kind of appeal or where, where is it going?
2: So it's before the federal court of appeal. Uh, We hope to persuade the federal court of appeal that this is unjust. All the evidence is there. Uh, The trial judge should just make a decision. Um, fortunately though, even if we don't win this appeal, we have a situation where, um, we had federal government officials admit under oath that there's no medical or scientific basis for these policies to bar the unvaccinated from getting onto airplanes. That's a huge, that's a huge victory, which, um, apart from the court action, we would never be able to hold the government to account. And we would never be able to force the government to come up with its pathetic, paltry evidence, which often consists of nothing more than, than you know, a bunch of discredited and disproven models. Uh, that governments don't have hard evidence when they come into court, and so we need these court actions to expose that fact.
1: Okay, so that's uh, that's being unfolded. That truth is starting to come out again and again. So I want to just um, shift a little bit to a little bit of a related topic and that would be the whole area of vaccine injury. Is that coming up in, in the Canadian scene? I know there's cases in the United States where people are proving uh, vaccine injury. Uh, what's going on in the Canadian scene in that regard? I'll
2: defer to Leighton on this one.
1: Okay, um, the, um, the, the answer is
0: uh, it, it is that that is, the, um, that is the future. That is where things are going. Uh, at this point, um, there has not been any uh, government recognition that um, these vaccines are causing harm. It's very clear from the Pfizer dump and from what we now know in the public forum that these vaccines uh, do not prevent infection or transmission at all. There's anecdotal stories about people, uh, you know, to the effect that it reduces the impact of the, or the severity of infections, but that's far from proven. What we do know is that there has been an explosion of uh, unexplained deaths. In fact, unknown causes is now the number one cause of death in Alberta. Sorry, can
1: you repeat that? In Alberta, the number one cause?
0: Unknown causes are now the number one cause of death in Alberta.
1: A few short years ago,
0: pre-vaccine, we only had about 500. And I believe in 2022, we had uh, just over ten thousand deaths uh, from unknown causes. Now we all know we all know what unknown cause is. Uh, it's the vaccines. The problem that we face as as lawyers right now is that, of course, um, and and a lot of people don't realize this. We're in, we're still in the midst of the grandest drug trial, experimental drug trial ever. Uh, these drugs are experiment are experimental. We're in the midst of the drug trial right now. Now, now
1: what do what do you mean by that, Leighton, In the sense that this wasn't a experiment per se, but it didn't go through the proper due diligence and, and pharma approved process. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Right.
0: Just so, so normally what would happen is, is if, uh, if a drug before it is, uh, is it's made available to the public, it has to go through rigorous testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people know about the FDA, which is the main one that's done in North America, uh, which applies to the United States and Canada. There's a rigorous testing, process it takes years to ensure that a drug is safe and effective I have it on a uh, good authority from an expert who told me that uh, drugs that that normally um, that, that that kill or, or become not released are known to cause death after after 50 such reports they're taken off the market well now in in county United States we have thousands and thousands of deaths and yet nothing is happening wow. but what's happened here with these is because they were rushed to market uh, you know trump's operation warp speed um these the the the, uh, uh, the governor of canada and the united states and other countries provided a grand indemnity to these uh pharmaceutical companies okay and so, so what, what does
1: that mean you mean the sense that they don't have to be held liable correct. for the product correct is that right
0: Yes, correct. So as it stands right now, these pharmaceutical companies cannot be sued for causing these harms, causing death or anything of that nature. And, the, and that's very unusual.
1: I've, I've never frankly heard of that before. Have you?
0: Um, it, 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 it is. It is unprecedented in modern times. It's also totally unprecedented for uh, people to be uh, forced to take an experimental drug in order to uh, to exercise basic civil liberties. Uh, of wow. course, uh, you know in Alberta, we know, uh, for example, that uh, people couldn't even get into arenas to see their, you know, see their children play play hockey. We had uh, you know, vaccine uh, identification cards that people had to provide proof of vaccination just to enter restaurants and the like.
1: Let so alone, that, see their, that's unprecedented or, or, too. Or late, I was going to say, let alone, um, sadly, be in situations where they could not see. Um, a dying loved one because right. they could not enter where they right. were. Right? right.
0: Yes. And uh, there are signs. I, I think this is ultimately, this is going to, this is going to break um, my firm. And I know others were in consultation with the firm in Montreal that's developing cases, vaccine mandate uh, or vaccine harm class actions. These are coming. Okay. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, some of your viewers maybe may have heard about what happened in Thailand where a member of the royal family actually was recently harmed and uh, Thailand is now the first country in the world that apparently is going to pierce this veil and open it up so that uh, these pharmaceutical companies can be can be sued. I think there I, I think my personal opinion, and this is supported by what's in the books I mentioned is that uh, big pharma has calculated this that they, they know that ultimately they're going to be left holding the bag and they've just they've just calculated the net
1: cost of causing all this harm. Okay. So I want to just clarify that. So you mean calculated latent in the sense that pharma realizes that of all their millions of vaccinations, some are going to sadly go awry and they'll just have Mm -hmm. to work that into the overall cost of the drug. Is that what you're alluding to?
0: Well, it's worse than that. Um, They know and they told governments that these vaccines caused harm based upon the data that they had in early testing they know these vaccines cause harm and, and, and death and they simply uh, went ahead anyway. Of course, given the uh, big, the license to do with impunity being insulated from harm, it was basically open season on the human body. Wow. And, uh, and they've made enormous pro- unprecedented profits. <laughs> and, um, and right now they, they cannot be sued for any of the, the deaths or injuries that these vaccines have caused.
1: I, I pray that that's going to change. I believe it's going to change, but, uh, we're not there yet in Canada. Okay. So on that front, we'll have to wait and see. I also did want to turn to the whole area of vaccine mandates. And we know that um, there are persons who said, although I have to take a vac- the quote vaccine to either travel um, and, and go see a, um, a dying relative, I also have to take a vaccine to work. And so on that mm. front, there were thousands of Canadians, and we probably know of some friends uh, closely or, or, or not so closely, who actually lost their job, sadly, because of those vaccine mandates. What about the status on that? Are there any challenges to defend those, um, those issues?
2: I'll comment briefly on the charter angle to it, and perhaps Leighton has examples of specific cases but the uh, Charter Section 7 uh, spells out the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Security of the person includes a right to bodily autonomy, which means that every individual has a right to, to decide on medical treatments, including vaccines, what will or will not be injected into my body. Um, kind of the old, same, the old cliche, my body, my choice, which it seems in 2021, nobody was chanting that anymore. Uh, seems like, like people didn't care. But um, the vaccine passports, vaccine mandates were very blatant, were and in some cases still are to the extent that they're in force, blatant violations of the uh, charter right to life, liberty and security of the person, because government should not be putting any pressure on people to take uh, any kind of a medical treatment. It's my understanding that in British Columbia, the, are, there are nurses and doctors who would love to go back to work tomorrow. They are still kept unemployed and without EI because of a personal choice to not get Um, injected with this COVID vaccine. And so British Columbia's healthcare system, I'm told is not doing very well. And they're trying to recruit people from other provinces, other countries to come to BC, but they're not yet hiring back doctors and nurses that would like to go back tomorrow. So very, very serious uh, violations of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the Nuremberg Code, which was a code of ethics that arose uh, from the trial of Nazi doctors in Nuremberg in 1945.
1: Okay, so let's just clarify this. So the Nuremberg laws relate to those laws that said you can't just put something into somebody's body without their permission. They, They have a kind of a freedom of conscience, if you will to make that ultimate choice. And we violated that, didn't we?
2: Yeah. The Nuremberg code, uh, the first principle is consent that is fully informed and fully voluntary. Mm-hmm. And of course, informed and voluntary are, are two sides of the same coin because if you're not properly informed, then it's not truly a voluntary decision, but there can be no force, no fraud, no duress, no pressure, nothing. And, um. These are uh, moral principles that are embedded in the, uh, the court judgments of the Nuremberg co- courts uh, that were released after the Second World War. And they've been completely disregarded
1: in Canada in the last two years. Wow, it, it, it's, it's truly shocking. And, and it seems like so much of the narrative around the management of COVID-19 was focused on a fear narrative um, rather than building up a confidence or a goodwill in public health it seemed like often the narrative was fear and uh, frankly, retribution. If you didn't fall into line, if you didn't take the vaccine. Um, now, personally, I took the vaccine, but it was after debate around saying, well, you know, is it safe, isn't it? But you know, what what should I do? But I we went ahead and took it. But I, I understand for for many people, they fundamentally did not want to do it. Wow. So I do want to look at a bit of a bigger picture, and that relates to the state of law in our country. Are there observations we can make regarding the rule of law? We know that these have been, in many respects, the cornerstone to our Western civilization, the whole notion that our rights and freedoms don't come from the state. They're God-given or natural rights, if you will, and that the king, the queen, whoever that is, is not above the law. And uh, it goes back to, what was it, June 15, 1215 with uh, King John, a terrible ruler who finally had to sign what was called the Magna Carta at, at Runnymede in England, who said that the, um, the rule of law is in place among many other things. So where are we going in this country when we don't, like, is, is the rule of law in jeopardy here in your point of view?
0: Um, Theresa Tam, and this is the connection between, you know, what I was saying earlier, the connection between COVID and where we're going. Theresa Tam is the chief medical officer for Canada, and uh, she's the, really the author of, uh, you know, or at least the instrument of, uh, the author of a lot of this pain and suffering that's been inflicted on Canadians over COVID-19. Recently, um, she published a 105-page manifesto ostensibly on climate change. Remember, this is a, a medical doctor called Mobilizing Public Health Action on Climate Change in Canada. And here she talks about uh, how climate change poses catastrophic risks for present and future generations and the livability of the planet. And then she goes on to say that the the government must take assertive and effective action across jurisdictions and sectors in order to deal with uh, things influenced by structural systems of oppression. Remember, this is a medical doctor. Structural systems of oppression, such as colonization, racism, ableism, and heteronormity. We need environmental health justice research and action for LGBTQ plus people and queering environmental justice, unequal environmental health burden on the LGBTQ plus community. So what I'm saying here is where we're going is we're living in a country that has a federal government, which regards itself as a national government. It has no regard for federalism, has no regard for the separation of powers. We saw this recently where the federal government justice Trudeau, Justin Trudeau basically issued an ultimatum to the premiers of this of this uh, of the provinces of this country, saying uh, basically saying, here's the money we're going to give for health care. This is money that has been extracted from the provinces, especially Alberta, <laughs> uh, in exchange for he said the quid pro quo is he wants the health information. Personal health information of every Canadian from every province, and uh, so where we're going is we are presently governed by a federal government that regards itself as a national government, has no regard for the rule of law, no regard for the constitution, no regard for the principles of federalism that have governed our country for a very, very long time, and uh, that's the re- that's the state of affairs wow. in this
2: country. That, and uh, shocking like
0: Alberta, yeah, and provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan out of necessity, out of necessity, mind you, uh, and, and I would include Quebec in that. Quebec is, I guess, the, the leader in this regard of necessity in order to insulate themselves from uh, the oppression of, of an expanding national state, uh, have, have fashioned basically, in, in, in short, independent movements, and, and have said, uh, and are saying to the federal government, look, you're encroaching on us in, in, in all these areas. You have no regard for the, fed, the rule of law, or the constitution, and so um, you know we're it's dividing the country. And I think that's where we're going. That's the only protection that individual provinces uh, can have against this against this uh, this federal government. Wow.
1: So, so are you saying, Leighton? That I mean, it was quite powerful when you were reading from Dr. Teresa Tam's document. Mm. It sounds like there's a real are you suggesting that the law is changing in the sense that the the state itself, the federal government, is imposing a very collectivist approach to the law mm-hmm. in the country? It doesn't respect individual rights and freedoms like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms.
0: I think that's exactly true. Um, and uh, you, you know, when you talk about the Charter, um, you know, you can just see the the, the disregard, for example, for uh, the individual rights and freedoms in the way that section one of the charter, which is a, uh, you know, it, it, which is supposed to be a very, very narrow exception. Brian Peckford talks brilliantly about this. It's supposed to be a, mer- a very narrow narrow a, a exception within which government can justify
2: mm-hmm.
0: infringement of individual rights and freedoms. Section one has been expanded so to such a degree that it almost obviates, vitiates, uh, wipes out uh, the individual rights and freedoms. And in fact, uh, our former Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, who serves on a court in China now and is well paid to do so, um, she wrote an op-ed not long after the Freedom Convoy was put down in Ottawa saying that essentially it's Section 1 is now the only effective charter right, which is another way of saying that, uh, you know, the state can do whatever it wants.
1: Wow. That's uh, frankly gobsmacking, um, and it is ironic that the former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin is serving in a court of China, no less, and mm-hmm. I believe it, it's Hong Kong, as I recall. Yeah, that's
0: right, which is now uh, part of China. It's been a essentially... Yeah, so we're using a, a judge
1: that headed a Canadian court to somehow build up the perceived credibility of a Chinese court, no less, a regime mm-hmm. that, that exercises uh, real genocide on on people. Right, it's, it's and really you disgusting. know... And,
0: our current chief judge also had some very pointed comments that he made well, publicly
1: about. Uh, I, I, I did want to talk briefly about the role of judges, and I did want to cite a little bit about um, the uh, uh, Canada's top judges' comments on the truckers' freedom convoy. And um, as I recall, a group of thirteen lawyers wrote a letter of complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council about comments by the Supreme Court of Canada J- Chief Justice Richard Wagner. And uh, the complaint uh, quotes um, the Chief Justice, and it said, um, quote, the beginning of anarchy to take other citizens hostage, to take the law into their own hands, not to respect the mechanism. I find that very worrying. So that's the essence of the comment. But the point is this, those kinds of signals, what do they tell you about the approach that these judges are looking at um, undertaking when it comes to their, their, um, uh, you know, their, their assessment of the freedom convoy as example, do they have any, have any possibility of having a fair trial in court when they have a a chief justice making remarks like that?
2: Well, I think your question kind of answers it. I mean, no, when the, uh, there, there is litigation on the go currently. In fact, the, the justice center in February of 2022. So, right after the crushing of the peaceful protest with tear gas and uh, uh, truncheons beating people with sticks, uh, police on horses, old lady trampled and injured. After all of this happened, we filed a court action seeking a declaration that the prime minister acted illegally when uh, declaring a national emergency. Now, this is in the federal court trial division. It is is likely to get appealed to the federal court of appeal by whichever side loses. Uh, and then from there it might possibly go up to the Supreme court of Canada. And so now we've got one judge on the Supreme court of Canada who's publicly uh, made derogatory comments about the peaceful protest in Ottawa that took place in February of 2022, which is profoundly disconcerting because there will be cases, or there may be cases. We don't know yet what mm-hmm. is going to what the Supreme Court is going to hear or not. Right, and they, 90% of the requests made to the Supreme Court are declined uh, by the Supreme Court, so they don't hear every case. But we we now have a situation where uh, anything related to the Freedom Convoy. Uh, if it gets into the Supreme Court, you've got a judge there who has publicly made it known yeah. what, where he stands.
1: Yeah, and- frankly, what his bias is.
2: What his bias yeah. is. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: No, and it's what's worse, very
1: disconcerting.
0: What's worse than that, David, I'll just add just add on to what John said. I had a, a, a woman on, uh, on my podcast named Karen Selleck. I think John knows this lady. She's a, uh, a wonderful journalist, a former lawyer in Ontario, mm-hmm. and she was the one who sort of spearheaded a complaint to the Canadian Judicial Council about Mr. Chief Justice Wagner's comments, and she discovered to her horror in the response, and getting back to the concept of the rule of law, guess who heads up the Canadian Judicial Council? Chief Justice Wagner. (laughs) The Chief Justice. Around and around we go. Yeah. So, you know, that's, you know, we're talking about rule of law, you know, uh, Brian Peckford talks a lot about you know, uh, in the Charter, there is this preamble to the Charter that says, you know, "All laws are subject to the supremacy of God and the rule of law." Well, um, is that true? I mean, is there true when no one in the state would be the prime minister, or a premier, or a chief judge uh, is answerable uh, mm-hmm. and can be held to account? I mean, that you pointed out the Magna Carta. That was the whole point of the Magna Carta was to make the the abuses of the king, the the caprice of the king, subject to the wisdom and the discretion of parliament, which represented the people. And that's, that's, our, that's our basic concept of representative democracy. And in a broader sense, that's really what's eroding in our country, I think, is I grew up in a country, and, and so did you and John, when it, we saw the representative democracy work effectively. That's the whole substance of our system. And that is being destroyed because so much political power, executive power, is being concentrated in the Prime Minister's office. This began with the first Trudeau and now the second Trudeau, and it's it's reached a point where there's a real serious question about whether or not Canada is a functioning democracy. And uh, there was a bit of a hubbub recently when Tucker Carlson in the United States actually made a joke in his program about, you know, he wondered <laughs> out loud why the Americans didn't send in, you know, <laughs> the troops to free right. Canada from yeah. Trudeau. Well, you know, we can laugh, but, you know, we, we, we wonder because, um, uh, you know, we have a prime minister who's been uh, five
1: times convicted of ethical mm-hmm. violations and won't resign. Exactly. So, you know. Yeah, so you're, you're, both of you are really challenging us to think incisively about what's happening, not only with the, how COVID-19 was managed, what information we have now. But how the government responded in a way that really undermined undermined fundamental rights and freedoms that Canadians take for granted. And we've got to wake up Mm -hmm. and say, wow, can this continue? Um, So I think you give some very powerful examples. And I I think one of the the powerful examples that, quite frankly, was very upsetting uh, that I heard about between Christmas and New Year's was the example of a gentleman by the name of John Carpe. And Mm -hmm. John, uh, your situation was really quite disturbing where, uh, you were, uh, charged, uh, because you, you, in a case in Manitoba, you undertook some surveillance of, of, uh, officials in an attempt to confirm or deny that people were even following their own rules, like around masks and, and, and things like that in terms of COVID-19, ironically. And, um, that came found out and, and so you were charged and, um, So this is quite some time ago. It's well over a year ago, if memory serves me correctly. And what happened was uh, you were um, uh, asked to uh, uh, basically surrender yourself to the law uh, between Christmas and New Year's. And, And can you explain basically the essence of what happened? I don't want to put you in an awkward position as you talk about that case, but I found that really quite disconcerting. It seemed like the Winnipeg police force was really, frankly, going after you in a very, dare I say, vindictive and totally untoward way. Um, When we have so many people uh, ripping down statues of Sir John A. MacDonald versus and Elizabeth II with impunity, and then they go after you, it it seemed really quite untoward.
2: Well, it's important. And this is part of the rule of law is that the, the, the government officials, and that includes judges, Uh, So politicians, uh, unelected people like the chief medical officer, senior bureaucrats, health bureaucrats, uh, all of these rulers uh, are under the principle of the rule of law. They, too, are subject to law. So way back in, uh, I think it was June of 2021, um, we had a private investigator do surveillance on the Manitoba premier chief medical officer and one judge with the sole purpose of seeing if these people were complying with COVID rules, yes or no. And, um, uh, this, the private, the surveillance thing went sideways and uh, became public knowledge. And so, um, I explained to the judge that I had ordered this surveillance. Uh, that was explained in court. It was all public. The media were present. Um, but then all of a sudden, seventeen months later, out of the blue, I get these criminal charges, uh, which my lawyers asked me not to comment on them. But I will say that Jordan Peterson has said that this is a political prosecution against me. It's political, uh, not my words, but just quoting Jordan
1: Peterson. Okay, so I mean, we'll keep an eye, close eye on that situation, John. We certainly wish you all the very best. It must be very difficult, quite frankly, for you as you uh, experience that kind of situation. Um, so I know this today wasn't specifically about the state of the media and information, but I can't help but bring it up because it kind of sets the broader context for legal challenge because, you know, like all of us were human beings, so are judges, so are politicians and everybody. And so there's a kind of, um, a discussion in the larger context that sets the tone for how we pursue these matters. And I would say that, during this whole issue and challenge of COVID-19 it was frankly quite evident that you rarely ever heard a vigorous balanced debate from different perspectives around the efficacy of lockdowns let alone the vaccines all kinds of issues you heard little bits of it in the margins. This last few months have been quite frankly um, spellbinding as we've examined the so-called Twitter files as Elon Musk acquired that so-called firm, we've learned really an awful lot. And I want to quote from the great Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute who said, quote, from the beginning of the COVID panic, it felt that something was very wrong. Never had a pandemic, much less a seasonal uh, pathogenic wave been treated as a quasi military emergency requiring the unupending of all freedoms and rights. What it, made, what it made it more bizarre was how alone those of us who objected felt until very recently when Elon Musk finally bought the platform Twitter, fired all the embedded federal agents and started to release the files. The proof is all there. These platforms colluded with the federal government's administrative arm, that's in the United States of course, to craft a particular COVID narrative and it goes on and on. But the point is that We have the receipts, we have the proof that show that a number of federal agencies in the United States were censoring, directing the messages that were acceptable, not only for COVID-19, incidentally, but for many other narratives. So in this context, why does that matter to the Canadian context? Because a lot of Canadians get their news, not from legacy media, but from the social media. And on top of that, we know in the legacy media in Canada, and a lot of Canadians would be shocked to know that some 2000 media receive a lot of funding from the federal government. So in that context, does that shape up what you're experiencing on the legal side? As so many Canadians, frankly, don't even know this background.
2: Well, the funding of, of media is a problem in terms of bad public policy. It does not, to my knowledge, it does not directly violate the individual chart of freedom of expression. So in other words, the government funding for media creates a very distorted information landscape where uh, you've got not only the CBC, but the, you know, the CTV and Global and National Post, Global Mail, every newspaper, every television station, every radio station, they're all uh, beating the drum for the government's narrative on COVID and other issues. And so there's a lack of independence. So it's very bad for democracy. Does this take away from my individual right to express my own opinions? I don't think it does. And so it's not something, in my view, that could be... It would be hard to challenge successfully in court. Uh, But certainly uh, nothing stops Canadian voters from telling their elected representatives that there should be no government funding for media. Why? Because we cherish independent media, and media funded by
1: government is not independent Exactly. You compromise it. Well said. Mm-hmm. What about you, Leighton?
0: Well, I agree with John. Uh, one thing that's on the horizon actually is um, uh, I recently spoke with uh, Dr. Robert Malone, who famously is one of the people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and others who were censored on Twitter because uh, they were offering uh, a different side of, of the truth, Um I'm biased in, in their favor in terms of the actual truth of COVID-19. But in any event, they, they were censored and suppressed uh, and actually called names. And Dr. Malone has actually filed a, um, a $50 million defamation oh, lawsuit. Pardon me, you
1: lawsuit. said 50
0: million? $50 million? $50 million lawsuit against the oh. Washington Post. Uh, who I heard one commentator, one podcaster described as a former newspaper uh against the washington <laughs> post on, on friday uh, uh accusing the washington, the washington post of dangerous lies the washington post had, had accused him during covid of spreading dangerous lies and mm-hmm. leading his followers on a journey to illness suffering and possible death that sort of sounds like uh, the winter of death that uh, right. president biden promised but so uh i think that um on the horizon there is uh, and I'm watching that case very, very closely because it could open the door uh, to a, a, a type of legal challenge against the, you know, the, the abuse of this media power uh, by, by large media conglomerates like the Washington Post or even, you know, the CBC or CTV or, or, or Global. Of course, um, the problem that that presents is that uh, someone like Dr. Malone, is someone who is well supported and has the resources to launch a suit like that. Um, You know, most, you know, doctors and practitioners and people like that don't have the resources to take on huge media conglomerate that has enormous power. But this, this marriage of, um, of, of government, big government, big media, uh, social media, and big corporate uh, it should be something that is a, tremendous concern to Canadians because it does not work to our to our benefit if you go back and you read the original writings of people like Benito Mussolini on fascism essentially
1: this fits the definition yeah when in fact we should be having open discussion all in the service of uh, serving Canadians and their health and in our communities right so As we we wrap things up, uh, any last words in terms of actions that Canadians can take as we look at this kind of landscape, uh, other than to be aware, any advice there?
2: I've often said that uh, quitters never win, winners never quit. And so the, the two virtues that we need the most in these dangerous times are courage and perseverance. We need courage to speak truth to power and continue speaking truth to power. fundamental it's crucial it's important courage to speak truth to power and then perseverance to keep on going and do it not just for a few days or a few months uh, but do it for years do it for decades uh it it, it took it took 70 years for the uh soviet russian communist empire to implode and collapse and uh the 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 flame of liberty and 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 conscience was, was kept alive over the course of the decades by Minority dissidents who suffered a great deal, but we need to be uh, persevering and not give up, and we need to keep up the efforts uh, for for years, decades, as necessary to win back all the rights and freedoms that we lost three years ago.
0: Well said, Leighton. I, I agree with that, and uh, uh, you know, you, you know, I'm a fan of quotations. There's a famous one from Lord Wilberforce, and most people won't know that name, but without him, we you know, we wouldn't have had the abolitionist movement that freed slaves in, 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 this, in the Western world. Uh, and he famously said that you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. And I would combine that with another piece of advice, which comes from Preston Manning, who wrote uh, a wonderful book. He's written many wonderful books, but a great book called Do Something, uh, which, which is a list of 365 things you can do, one for each day of the year to get involved. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about today, uh, this this government overreach, uh, which reaches into every aspect of our lives, has happened because we're not as connected as we could be and we ought to be with our local communities. So if something is happening in your home community, get out there, say something, do something, get involved. Because when, when we do not, these other people that uh, they, I mean, <laughs> the universe abhors a vacuum somebody else moves in and you might and you you might not like uh what they're what they're going to try and make you do whether it's the smart city the 15-minute city or uh drag queens coming into your local library to put on a show for youth uh get out there get involved uh because that that's where we're going to change this thing is at the grassroots level
1: John Carpe and Leighton Gray. Thank you so much for joining us today on this discussion about fighting for rights and freedoms in the courts in Canada. We're very great, uh, gr- grateful for your courage and we're very grateful for your time. So, so, so thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thanks David. Thanks Leighton. So that brings to a close our, um, our time together in this discussion about this important topic. We want to thank all of you for joining us and for being part of the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Be sure to check out our website at www.fcpp.org. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter and stay involved. And on this topic, be sure to follow the Citizens Inquiry in Canada that is now starting up in Canada. Frontier is a partner in that effort and we encourage you to stay informed. In the meantime, I encourage you to continue to ask questions and without uh, discussion. Remember, you're not, you're not thinking and nor are you free. So thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.